This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to writer and researcher Colleen Wood. She's been all over Kazakhstan due to her work on her PhD and she's going to be talking to us about the recent uprising or the clashes or the large-scale protests, whatever you want to call it, that occurred in Kazakhstan last week. The internet has been cut off there for several days so we're not really sure what's going on on the ground but we do know that over 100 people have died, thousands have been arrested. So Colleen is going to explain to us how this happened and where it came from. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. Alright, cool. Um, so Colleen, maybe before we go into what led up to this maybe you can just kind of uh take us back to the uprising or the clashes whatever you want to call it um and explain how, like what actually happened during the during the situation why did it um get so violent so quickly yeah so i mean i'll preface all of this by saying that yeah like since tuesday so almost a full week there hasn't been internet access to Almaty, kazakhstan's biggest city the hub for journalism hub for activism and so a lot of like the voices that we would normally trust to be putting out pictures videos updates on like what exactly happened have been offline since things got really bad so it's been super hard to piece together the story but um i think that we've got a solidly fact-checked version that hopefully in the next few days we'll be able to add details to but my understanding of it is that on january 2nd was the first protest in this um, cycle that started in the city of Janazen. So it's a, an oil town in far Western Kazakhstan, uh, pretty close to the Caspian Sea. And uh, people there gathered to protest the price hike um, in um, the liquid petroleum fuel that it, it wasn't like the government didn't announce, oh, we're just going to randomly boost the price. It was the end of a kind of three-year gradual subsidy um, that had the end of a three-year subsidy that had been gradually taken away. Um, but the effects of the like removing the subsidy um, were suddenly felt. And I think it's important to put in context that like, you know, we're, we're all two plus years into a pandemic and people in Kazakhstan, especially people in this Western province, have really struggled economically in the last two years. And so I think a huge driver of getting people out on the streets in Zhanaozen was this added insult to injury of living in a city and producing Kazakhstan's resource wealth while having to pay up the butt for it. Then the way that they spread from Zhanaozen, people in the nearby town of Aktau, which is the capital of that region in Western Kazakhstan, they also gather uh, in similar vein of, you know, we're oil workers, this is not right. And things spread to other bigger cities in Kazakhstan from there, I think out of a sense of solidarity with Zhanaozen that in, in 2011, December 2011, there were there was a massacre in which state police opened fire on oil protesters who were striking um, and the government shut down the internet. They tried to cover it up. They claimed only a handful of people died um, when the counts were really in the hundreds. And so I think that the initial spread is this kind of knee-jerk reaction of like, not Zhanaozen, um, we need to all show up in solidarity for Zhanaozen, but also drawing on these bigger narratives of 
you know, we're fed up with corruption. We're fed up with economic stagnation while our leaders are like lining their pockets with all this oil wealth. Like we should be much more rich, much more comfortable. And we don't have any avenue in which to demand recourse from our leaders. Um, so those protests spread between January 3rd and 4th. And it was January 5th that things got violent. Um, the story that I saw in the four hours that people in Almaty last night had internet was across the board, activists, rights defenders, uh, people who are working in human rights, all of them shared the same story, which was that the in se first several hours of protest in Almaty were super peaceful, huge columns of people, like unprecedented number of people turned out in Almaty. Um, but just you know, walking, marching, chanting, nothing violent, no destruction of property. And once it got dark, that they there were reports of groups of angry men who riled things up. And this is a really common story in post-Soviet spaces of like provocateurs, um, maradiors, like uh, marauders, I guess is the English word, but uh, provocateurs um, of, of people who are paid to turn what is otherwise peaceful protests into something a lot more violent. And this time the state just reacted really, really violently. It took a heavy handed response to it. Um, and that's how you then have January 6th is which there's um, shootings between armed protesters and the government. Um, at this point, though, the main uh, one of the main human rights activist groups, civil civic civic um, activist groups, Oyan Kazakhstan, has asked people to just stay at home. Don't go. Don't be involved in this. It's not peaceful. Don't do it. So it's, it's unclear who exactly are the people then still out on the street fighting back at the police. Um, but there are reports of this and, and video of this. Um, and this is then when Kazakhstan's president invites the CSTO troops to come in. Um, and so in the, in the past few days, then it's unclear outside of Almaty really what's going on because there has been such strict um, internet communications shutdown. But um, my sense is that the protests that continued in Western Kazakhstan remained peaceful, did not have police intervention, um, and really, Almaty was the cornerstone of, of violent clashes. Uh, what, why is it then that um, Almaty was so um, hardcore, if you like? You know, the, the protesters there were, from what I observed, just having absolutely none of it, driving around with um, weapons. They were raiding, I think, a police station. They were raiding gun shops, just trying to get firearms. Why is it that that place specifically seemed to become like the epicenter of the, the violent clashes, the uprising side of it? I mean, Almaty is really the cultural center of Kazakhstan. It was the capital after independence for many years. Um, it's the biggest city in Kazakhstan, although the president has really been trying to build up the new capital. Astana, renamed Nur Sultan in 2019, has been trying to shift the center of balance, if you will, to, to there. So I think that like Almaty is really the center of grievances, has the biggest history of, of protests, of this type of civic-minded protest in the country. Um, and so one of, I think one of possible explanation for why Almaty got really dangerous is if it does turn out to be true that the provocateurs were hired by someone or that this was like not directly stemming from the peaceful protesters who had initially gathered um, is that they were brought in from somewhere else. But the idea being to like make an example out of Almaty that the government then could say like, look, we had to restore order of this like violent, crazy city. Don't be like them. Like we have 
quashed the like liberal foreign um, forces who are trying to destable the whole country. Um, so that's the take that's most convincing to me is that the super heavy response from the police, from state forces um, is to make an example out of the city. Right. Um, and I heard that a lot of the people involved in the clashes in Almaty were like former military or they'd at least trained due to the conscription. Is that right? Um, I'm actually, I'm not sure on this. I haven't seen any like confirmed by Kazakhstani news outlets, like mm. the profiles of who exactly were the people on the streets um, or even who are the people who, who died in these clashes. Um, so I think, I think it's just like a little bit too early given the communication shutdown to like, have a sense of what the demographic makeup uh, or like who the people on the street were um, just given that, there hasn't been internet since Tuesday. Right, right. Yeah, I think maybe then that's just speculation. Um, let's let's go back then. A, a lot of people were like, wow, this came out of nowhere. And I'll be honest, I don't know a ton about Kazakhstan, but it was sort of on my radar. There have been quite a few protests in 2021, right? Maybe just give us an idea of how, like, how this happened, what led up to it. Because despite what people are saying on fucking Twitter, this didn't come out of nowhere, right? Oh, definitely not. Um... So I'm writing actually my like dissertation, I'm writing a book on social movements and uh, strategies of organizing and um, like building a movement in Kazakhstan, um, tracing protest movements and tracing activism from 2019 to today. And so that's where, I mean, there's obviously you can like with this type of thinking, like trace it back to independence if you really, really want to, like Soviet era legacies, blah, blah. But I think that the most clear thread or like arc starts in early 2019 in February um that in February 2019 there's a house fire in Astana in which five little kids die because their parents aren't home um the parents are out working a midnight shift in order to make enough money um to pay for food and this sparks a pretty like a countrywide series of what's ended up being called mother's protests um, in which people, moms are out on the street complaining, um, showing up to city halls in cities across Kazakhstan and just yelling at the mayors of like, how dare you? Like you've promised us economic stability and we have no food to feed our children. We have no food for school supplies. We have no money for housing. Um, and I think when then in a handful of cities, police crack down on them. They, like So there's videos of men in police uniforms beating up and like dragging moms around. And in Kazakhstan, the image of this, I think, was really like lit a fire under people's asses. Like seeing, you know, that the state is willing to abuse these people who weren't even really asking for political reform. They're just asking for the state to follow through on promises that already made regarding welfare, regarding, you know, a social safety net, um, that then they kind of morphed into more political demands. Um, and so like the broad attention in Kazakhstan is on this in early, in early 2019. And it's only a few weeks after this that then President Nursultan Nazarbayev asks the government to resign. Um, he, you know, promises all kinds of reform, but then three weeks later, he steps down out of nowhere. This one, like, really took people who closely watch Central Asian politics by surprise when Nazarbayev stepped down. Um, but there's, I think, a pretty clear link between the unrest from the February protests and his decision to 
resign as president. I mean, he still has a grasp on power um, through a handful of other positions, but um, it's then in the, the government announced snap elections in June, 2019. Um, and following just like a day of total mess, like just not even trying to hide the level <laughs> of which they're like faking ballots, stuffing ballot boxes and stuff. There are huge protests for like five days. So um, I think this really sparked the like political um, weight behind some of the bigger um, civic movements in the country that have been the ones that are organizing a lot of the big protests in Almaty and and Astana and Ur-Sultan use them interchangeably for the capital. But yeah, I see the beginning of this as, as February 2019 is this conversation around, you know, our social contract is broken. You promise reform over and over and nothing changes um, to add that to the pandemic. And I think that there's a pretty clear line of like economic meets political grievances that just got out of hand. Right. Um, and a lot of people have only ever heard of Kazakhstan because of fucking Borat. But basically, people don't really have a cultural reference point for Kazakhstan. Obviously, you've been over there, you've been on the ground, you've been traveling all over the place talking to all different people. Maybe just give us an idea of like, what what is the culture like there in Kazakhstan? Um, and how does that lend itself to like, you know, this wave of, you know, very violent protests we've seen? For sure. So... Yeah, Kazakhstan is a huge country. I guess I'll preface it by that. Like, what it covers basically the same territory as all of Western Europe. Um, so, I think even like to say, like, what is the culture of Kazakhstan? Like, it is a super multi ethnic country that there's mm. all kinds of ethnic minorities and the different regions of Kazakhstan. There's all kinds of different stereotypes. I mean, just like the US, just like different parts of the UK, like, there's stereotypes about accents and stereotypes about, oh, like, they're hillbillies, they're city folks, and all of the, the positives and negatives that come with that. Um, but yeah, I think, like, in terms of trying to, like, draw on it culturally, this really depends on kind of where you get dropped in the country. Like, if you're in Almaty, this is a city that has a, like, huge underground trap scene. This is a city that has a pretty vibrant LGBT bar scene. Um, it's a really incredible place to visit. And I really hope that the events of the last week don't dissuade people from, from eventually getting over there. Um, but, you know, life in Almaty is totally, totally different than um, being dropped into I don't like in, in northern Kazakhstan, just even a few hours away from the capital, something like Pavlodar, where it's like largely ethnic Russians, Russian speaking, um, super rural, you know, all the a lot of the villages in Central Asia have this kind of same look to the houses. They're all painted with this same like light blue paint um, and, and white fences. Um, but village life there, like it's, you know, this is a, a culture that is historically nomadic. There's a really heavy emphasis placed on caring for animals, caring for the family, like not just the nuclear family, but like an extended family um, as the like unit of social life and a lot of respect for elders. Um, but yeah, so there's, it's, you know, spans a, a really wide range of things. And I think it's kind of cool to see, at least like from what I'm following, Kazakh indie music is like, sounds super cool. Like it's unironically like high up on all of my Spotify playlists. Um, Cause it's just so awesome. So yeah, culturally Borat does not get anywhere close to, to what it's actually like to be in Kazakhstan. But if I had to like sum it up super easily, 
you know, there's this big, I think a culturally relevant divide, the two big culturally relevant divides are urban rural. Um, and sometimes that urban rural divide gets mapped onto like Russian speaking, Kazakh speaking, but um, I hesitate to even like emphasize that because I think that the narrative that's been popping up around, oh, this is going to turn into like ethnic warfare. This is going to turn into Russia trying to protect ethnic Russians um, is like the wrong direction for like the discourse to go <laughs> on Kazakhstan. Yeah. I mean, from what I was reading before the internet went down, it, it, I mean, I know they were like, we want, you know, a lot of the protests was, were saying we want to de Russia, fi however you say it, um, the region, but it wasn't like, it wasn't a racial thing. It was, they were talking about like, you know, economics. They were talking about legal issues, stuff like that. From what I understand, there was no, no one was saying like, kill the Russians, right? No, no, definitely not. Part of me thinks that, so in Russian, people who are in Kazakhstan right now are describing what happened in Almaty. So all of like the super violent riots as in Russian, the word is pogrom, so pogrom. And I think that when that gets translated into English, English speakers just like have a more ethnicized association with it. Yeah, like, it definitely has like a, a racial aspect to it in English, doesn't it? Yeah. So I think that that might be one of the links that's pushing this narrative. Um, and also just like an obsession with anything that's in Russia's backyard, post-Soviet, there must be something with like ethnic divides that is what's ultimately at the heart of the conflict. Yeah, it's funny that the West always goes to that when it seems to be a big issue in the West as well. Um, yeah. Um, so what's, what's the situation with the government? Um, from what I understand, they're quite authoritarian, right? But it's not like a dictatorship as such. Um, maybe explain to us, obviously now they've, they've done some insane shit. Like they ordered people, they ordered their security forces to shoot to kill without warning, which is obviously completely fucked up. They're calling the protesters terrorists. Um, you know, it is what it is. But what was it like before that? Yeah, so a super smart scholar who spent a ton of time in Kazakhstan in the 90s, his name is Ed Schatz. He's a professor at the University of Toronto. He wrote a piece calling Kazakhstan's political situation basically like an example of soft authoritarianism. Right. Authoritarianism from the concept of like, or from the context of like, there's only one party that's ever going to win. You're not going to have a kind of like back and forth like in the US between Democrats and Republicans. Like the rules of the game are stacked such that like the people who are in charge are going to stay in charge. Um, but the soft part of it is that there's like a relatively free press compared to say China, there's relatively free internet, say compared to more aggressively um, autocratic regimes. Like definitely there are high numbers of like political prisoners. Definitely there's a ton of, police and financial and legal pressure on journalists, on NGOs, on activists. Um, but they're they're allowed to operate and they're allowed to to do their thing. Um, I think maybe what would I guess like exemplify this type of like soft authoritarianism was that when the new president Tokayev came to power, he gave his first press front conference, he promised that Kazakhstan would be reformed into a listening state. So this idea of like we're here to listen to you, we're all going to reform together but we can't reform too quickly because that will cause social problems and chaos. So we've got to, the ruling party has to hold on and will slowly introduce freedom for people to choose their representation and to have some say in things. Um, so like one example of that is that this past year they opened up 
um, that village mayors were open for election, whereas that wasn't before. Um, unfortunately, then the only pe- most of the people who ran for mayor were like the previous mayors or people associated with the party. But so that kind of shows like the tension between like, yeah, like there's only one choice because the, <laughs> the government wants to stay in power. But in theory, like people did get to go vote for the representation. Um, the extent to which that was a sham uh, kind of, I think, depends region to region across the country. Right. Kind of, I mean, to be honest, in a way, quite, uh, I don't want to say typical, but not that unusual for like a post-Soviet state at this time in history. You know what I mean? For sure. Even I think like, so writing my dissertation about Kazakhstan, people ask me all the time, like, who cares? What is this place? Why is this worth studying? And I think that like all of, at least from an academic perspective, like so much of the literature and all the theories that academics use are based on studies from Russia and China, which are obviously important for ge- geopolitical purposes for blah, blah, blah. But I think Kazakhstan is like a pretty like average autocracy and <laughs> like understanding the dynamics of how this place works helps us even understand beyond the post-Soviet space into the Gulf, um, into North Africa, even into parts of Eastern Europe that weren't um, within the Soviet Union into uh, sub-Saharan Africa. So I think yeah, Kazakhstan is pretty average even beyond the its its post-Soviet neighbors. Right, right. So in terms of so the at one point during the protest, quite early on, the president said, "Right, it's cool now. <laughs> the government has resigned." And everyone for a minute online was like, "Oh, they were successful." And it was like, "No, the the government hasn't. The government has kind of resigned, but the president is still there, and nothing really changed." What what was that about? And like, remember how I was saying with the February 2019 mother's protests that Nazarbayev had the government resign? It's like the same thing. It's a mirror image. It was like an attempt to scapegoat random party loyalists who have climbed their way up the ladder high enough that they're like worth sacrificing um, in order to save the top, (laughs) the the people on top. Um, yeah, having the ministers and the cabinet, like ministers of cabinets resign was not ever, I think, going to like quell, quell the protests. But if anything, I guess, like gave the current president an opportunity to start the process of if he's like really trying to create this divide between himself and the previous president and his loyalists, like starting by having the government resign is like step one of calling, I don't know, like calling the elite and starting fresh. For him to like reinforce his own power right and he just stayed in the same position yeah so he's complete he has complete power right yeah like because so it's unclear where nazarbayev is right now the first day of protests there are reports that he fled the country for like quote-unquote healing in europe but then also a few days ago there was something from his his like press person said of course he is here and in the capital and is monitoring the situation it's like we don't actually know there's like no like <laughs> picture of him holding up a newspaper with like proof of date that shows like where in the world he is so i think if we find out where Nazarbayev is that'll give us a big hint as to how much power Tokayev actually has um Do you think he might be in moscow i don't know about moscow like these people, the, the Kazakhstani government, like the Nazarbayev family, has like no like hundreds of millions of dollars hidden in in the UK, like in properties, in really? banks. Yes, dude. Like follow the money. They are in <laughs> they are in London. Like if anything, Nazarbayev's daughter is like at I think she it's like she has an 
50 million dollar home in london like they're probably in london yeah it's exactly what um there's a lot of um children of um the ccp you know china um have exactly the same thing like and our government's just like yeah cool <laughs> you know like no problem and that's why like and now it's like great nobody can afford anything anymore because like some regime just put their kids in huge houses you know what i mean um it's very annoying. Um, speak, speaking of, obviously, like we have to address it because you know it's just embarrassing. But obviously, there was um, people saying on the internet, like, "Oh, um, it's a CIA, it's a CIA backed blah blah blah." Which, as we know, anyone always says things like that immediately. Um, but actually, I, I obviously did a bit of reading into it. The Kazakhstan has got like a pretty good relationship with the Americans, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty solid relationship. Um... I think, yeah, solid relationship insofar as like relative to neighboring states. I think the U.S. is a bit more involved militarily in Uzbekistan, but like Kazakhstan's got all the oils. <laughs> it's like these like huge U.S. firms involved there. There's definitely a lot of like economic ties, um, money laundering ties. Um, with that said, though, the U.S. I don't like. John Kerry, former Secretary of State, goes for a tour of Central Asia and like messes up the spelling and pronunciation of, of Kyrgyzstan, kind of like blends it with Kazakhstan. So even like high-level US officials don't know the difference or like don't know <laughs> where these places are, which is super embarrassing. And it's very American. <laughs> very American, very yeah. American, and just so embarrassing. But um yeah, there's no like this is obviously <laughs> CIA. Stunt, and I was kind of surprised though that like the president in in his so step one was like calling the, the protesters terrorists. Step two was saying that, oh they're they're foreign trained terrorists, and step three was in his speech today to the CSTO folks was like they're not only foreign trained terrorists but they were going around to morgues and collecting the bodies of their fallen comrades to I don't like I don't know for what end, but. Surprisingly, I was struck that he did not link this to the U.S. or to the West, because um, that's a very common refrain in this part of the world, is any sort of political unrest comes from the U.S. and comes from the CIA. So it was weird to me that, like, non-Kazakhstanis are like, I don't know, like, American tankies or whatever, like, they're the ones that are claiming that it's the CIA when the government in Kazakhstan itself has not even made that claim. Yeah, I mean, it's annoying. I mean, it should be said that obviously America has been meddling with wars across the world for decades and decades. It's not like they wouldn't. But I, what really annoys me with these kind of tankies, basically, it's, it's kind of an inverse racism. They're basically saying, like, these people can only rebel against their government with the help of a white nation in the West. And it's like, what? You think they don't have their own agency to go, we're sick of this? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just ridiculous. One thing I did find um, quite interesting, though, uh, and someone spotted it when I was talking to a friend, uh, a friend of mine, about this. So on the, on the on some of their media, they put um, Kazakhstan government put out like this video saying, "Oh, we found a, a cache of weapons." Um, you know, this was these were from the protesters or the terrorists, as they're calling them. And in in the shot, they have like an image of a one dollar. Now, the one dollar is was a big thing in Turkey when they were accusing everyone that basically didn't want to be, you know, trodden on the neck by the government of being a Gulenist, this kind of, you know, this guy with this 
religious sect, whatever, that was, it, to be fair, was undermining the government on some level. But, um, you know, Turkey went wild with it. And they were like, everybody, everybody is Gulenist. And when they would use like footage of arms um, being recovered from these so-called Gulenists, they would use like a $1 bill saying, oh, this is an example. This is what they keep. They keep a $1 bill, you know, like they're all in involved with the CIA and this is how they recognize who's who. Now, even more interesting then, someone else sent me something where basically one of the Russians, um, I don't know, like a diplomat or something to do with the government, was in Turkey and said, yeah, the, the protesters were both ISIS and Gulenist. And I was like, okay, interesting that you would suddenly then start seeing this dollar bill pop up. It's almost like, you know, everything's connected in that way of trying to, you know, just put this blame on the protesters as if they're not genuine. Um, I don't know. It seems like a concerted effort to do that. You know what I mean? For sure. Yes. Yeah. So the it's actually it's a former like member of Russia's parliament. The guy's name is Ruslan Balbek. Um, right. That's him. You know. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's not a coincidence that like the Glenis narrative also shows up in Kazakhstan, like Kazakhstan and Turkey have super close business ties and cut. Turkey has tried really hard to like pull Kazakhstan further under its wing under, I don't know, like pressure it by it being like, oh, there's Gulenists in your country. You have to extradite them back to us. Or like, oh, there's Gulen sympathizing people working in your ministry of education, send them back to us. Um, and Kazakhstan has more the more than Kyrgyzstan, um, which is like fully just like not agreed to capitulate to what Turkey wants. Kazakhstan is like sometimes send people back. Um, so I think the one dollar bill is definitely like, yeah, I would. Whoever has the guns is not going to just have like a single one dollar bill if they're involved in some kind of like criminal stuff. If any, like if there's going to be U.S. currency, it's like hundreds or twenties. I don't like exactly. Yeah, exactly. One dollar bill is stupid. But one thing from the videos that maybe like confirms, I don't know, that the Kazakh government or whoever like military or police forces are actively thinking through. Okay, we made this claim. It's foreign trained terrorists. Where do we place the blame? Um, is that either in that video or in one right after, there's a stack of Kyrgyz passports, like light blue Kyrgyzstani passports that show up in the video. And then it was like six hours later that authorities claimed that literally this man is a jazz musician, a piano player from Kyrgyzstan who was visiting Almaty for a concert. That the government was like, this guy is the terrorist, like, like thought leader. They brought it, like, tortured him, beat him up, and oh. he, like, confessed to participating in the protests in exchange for 200 bucks. But so in the last day, there's definitely, like, from Kazakhstani authorities, they've been, like, going door to door of people who are registered as, like, guest workers from Kyrgyzstan um, and checking their documents and seeing whether they've been at the protest. So I think that there's definitely an active grasping at straws to, like, actually put together this narrative to justify inviting CSTO troops um, cause the story just like makes absolute no, like no sense at all. And I think that it's only going to work because there's a total information vacuum within Kazakhstan. But like the minute that Almaty like sees that the government like, just like does not have any explanation for this. I don't, I don't know how Tokayev like survives this without going super, super aggressive, um, on repression. Right. Just not letting anyone get rid of him or change or vote basically. Yeah. Um, why why would uh why would it be Kyrgyzstan are they they don't get on with Kyrgyzstan or what they generally get along with Kyrgyzstan but I think so like 
Dukhaev and Nazarbayev before him have like pretty consistently used Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan as like examples of countries in the region where like chaos has reigned and like Kyrgyzstan is a democratic country and like look it's had three revolutions since independence like we don't want to be like Kyrgyzstan um we can't be like that so swap in your your vote swap in your voice in exchange for stability and that that narrative has worked for a long time in Kazakhstan um so I think uh, the seeds of like okay let's blame Kyrgyzstan is that Kyrgyzstan had its own unrest like not not quite revolution but also like definitely a power change that happened through major, major protests yeah there was like gun battles even right like last year yeah october 2020 yeah i think we did an episode on it um yeah um so let, let's actually one more thing i want to i want to say on that actually there was the, the interesting thing i saw um as well when they were doing these videos saying right these are weapons we've recovered from protesters the one video with the one dollar bill there was weird i think they were training rifles and because they were painted black now this isn't me um someone a lot smarter than me i think either war noir or caliber obscura was saying like these are not you know this is a weird rifle to have why are they painted black and it did look weird and all the rifle all the rifles were very uniform but then it went and showed another video where it's like right that that looks legitimate it was um like, you know, a collection of different guns. There were, like, hunting rifles, a few AKs, um, like, pistols. There was a bottle of vodka for some reason. That looked like, yeah, that, that could be possible that that was them because there were quite a few protesters, right, like, driving around with guns. Like, it's not... I don't want to act like, oh, it was completely peaceful, blah, blah. Like, the protesters were essentially, you know, engaged in a, in a small-scale insurrection. Yeah, and I've seen videos of that too. I think, like, I personally am just waiting for, like, there's really, really incredible investigative journalists in Almaty who just, like, have not had access to internet or, like, being able to call people for days right. that I'm personally just trying to, like, waiting wait them, yeah. on making a judgment call on that until local journalists have have done their work. And, like, they're, they're incredible. These people, like, work under insane amounts of stress, pressure from the government, pressure from the military, police, from everyone. Um, so like once they have the space and time, literally probably just like days, like it's not going to take them very long to to dig into this, but um, I'm personally waiting to to hear from them. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, let's, let's talk about the, uh, the CSTO then. We, we've spoken about it briefly, but what happened? Basically, the government at one point said, okay, I need Russia now. Like what happened? Why, why was it that they called in you know, Russia and all these, this mixture of uh, different troops from Armenia, Belarus, everywhere. What, what's going on with that? Yeah. So this was a like, immensely frustrating decision from the perspective of a lot of Kazakhstanis, a lot of Russians, and for all the people who study this part of the world who like, because like when the world remembers that Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan exist, like, oh, what does Russia want from this? What does China want from this? And all of the people who like have lived here, have studied it, have written books about it. They're like, no, 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 it's not about Russia. Like it can just be about Central Asia. And then Tokayev invited the CSTO, um, I guess for listeners who maybe don't know the acronym, the Collective Security Treaty Organization. It is like a military alliance among six post-Soviet countries. Um, it's been around since 1992, like since so right after the Soviet Union collapsed, but Tokayev invites these troops and it's like, oh no, he made it about Russia. Like this is a nightmare for <laughs> right. all the people who are trying to explain internal dynamics without the geopolitical bullshit. Um, but I mean, from the perspective of like, why would Tokayev call? Like this 
military alliances, I guess, like essentially the, the point of it is to like protect autocracy. So, you know, the other two countries that have asked for troops to be sent, it was Kyrgyzstan in 2010 when there were, um, when there was ethnic violence in the Southern part of the country, CSDO said no. Um, and then Armenia this past year, when there were, was the war with Azerbaijan, Armenia asked for the CSTO to send troops and they also said no. Um, so it's kind of like a two levels of questions of like one, why would Kazakhstan ask? And two, then like, why does CSTO decide to send them now? And, and my guess is that like Putin, other people in the Kremlin, like see what's happening in Kazakhstan as enough of a threat to like their own internal hold on power that it makes sense to like have this show of force um, that like th we're not going to stand for this. Right. And and maybe explain what those troops have been doing then, because like I said, there's a various different troops have been sent into the country. I know that, you know, the internet has been down, but we've also heard that like, you know, over 160 people have been killed according to the government. It's likely a lot higher. I think 8,000 arrests. Um, do we have any idea of what, you know, what the CSTO has been doing in the country? Yeah, so like a lot of the arrests are not from CSTO troops themselves. Like even the, before CSTO showed up in the country, there were, I think the number was like 4,000 people had been arrested by then and has crept up since then. Um, so CSTO troops, it's about 3,000 people, um, vast majority sent from Russia. You also have then 500 from uh, Belarus, 500, uh, how many? I think Tajikistan sent a few hundred, two or 300, and Kyrgyzstan was kind of dragged into sending 150. There was definitely, there's a local a protest in Bishkek in the capital of Kyrgyzstan to not send of like, this is our brother nation, we shouldn't be intervening. Um, but the president went ahead and sent, agreed to send 100, 100 people, and Armenia also sent about 100 people. Um, also, in response to locals saying, please don't do this. Um, but so the official line on what their mission is, is like helping protect Kazakhstani military outposts and government buildings. And then the broad mission is to, you know, complete this anti-terror um, campaign. So it's at once like hyper-specific guard government buildings, but also super vague and this terrorist operation. Um, and this too is is I'm kind of waiting to see footage and reporting from from locals in Almaty and Sultan on what exactly it looks like. One of the Telegram channels that I'm following super closely for news, it's Orda. It's reporting in Russian. Um, has gotten a lot of videos and photos sent in that I've seen footage of like someone from their balcony films Kazakhstani police patrolling the streets alongside CSTO troops. So like they're looking for people, they're looking for people in cars with guns. Um, but the extent to which they're deviating from official missions is, is I think unclear. And I'm, I'm waiting for more reporting on what exactly interactions between locals and these CSTO troops looks like. Yeah. It's, it's, it's looking quite dodgy. When I was looking, it seemed that Russia was sending a lot of hardware, you know what I mean? It seemed like a lot for 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 what was going on. I know that there were very serious gun battles, but it, it I don't know. I, I don't know how quickly those vehicles will end up leaving. You know what I mean? For sure. I mean, I think part of like what I said earlier about Kazakhstan's government trying to use Almaty as an example to show other people in Kazakhstan, like this is what we'll do to you is I wouldn't be surprised if the, the 
the huge hardware, like really, like, yeah, I saw videos of the huge tanks and the Spetsnaz people like rolling down from the plane um, onto the tarmac. Like I saw that too. And my guess is that also is to scare people who are in Almaty from having the idea to, to do this again. Right. Yeah. That definitely makes sense. Um, one thing um, that a lot of people are saying is, oh, this is basically Russia is going to have control of Kazakhstan now. What, what do you make of that? I mean, I don't really know the the way those two, how close they are. And obviously they're close, but is that something Russia you think would do in Kazakhstan? I mean, there's a, like, so there's a lot of oil, there's a lot of mineral wealth. What do you think? Yeah, I was struck by a lot of like super smart people that I follow on Twitter who like are Russia experts or I don't know, like Eastern Europe experts who made this these like bold claims of, like oh Kazakh it's such a shame Kazakhstan's now a vassal state of Russia and I think that it's like way too fucking early to make yeah. that claim because um, like yes Kazakhstan does have massive oil wealth it does have like the baikonur um cosmonauts or cosmodrome complex um that russia owns is within kazakhstan's territory it's a huge uranium producer bitcoin producer like there's definitely economic reasons to like want to stick around in kazakhstan or have kazakhstan be loyal but like uh i i think my initial take on it and i think it's really like too early to really be making claims as like Kazakhstan's a vassal state. Um, it's like, it's a real shame that Tokayev sacrificed like 30 years of really hardcore pushing this narrative of like Kazakhstan is a sovereign state, independent state. Um, we make our own choices with multi-vector diplomacy. We balance Russia, the US, China, all these other great immediate powers against each other to maintain our own decision-making power. Did he like sacrifice all of that in a single call to CSTO. Um, and like, maybe this gives Russia some leverage over, over the natural resource wealth, but like I, I, and maybe this will be like, <laughs> I feel like in political science, no one ever wants to be like making guesses about the future, but I would be really surprised if we see anything like the protracted conflict in Ukraine playing. Oh, yeah. in I don't see that at all. No, I don't. I think I think the the situation has been contained already. You know what I mean? It's it's really quick. I, I think the problem is like you were just saying. There's a lot of think tankers and and all of that. The you know they say that a lot of them that say they're they're Russia experts. A lot of them just seem to hate Russia. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you can you can be you know. I think what the Kremlin does is terrible. You know what I mean? It does some awful stuff. As have the government in my country as well. As have most governments. But it's like Russia's a very cool, great place. There were people literally protesting against Russia in Moscow saying, no, don't send troops over there. There were even like Marxists coming out in support of the people, you know, that had, that had taken part in the, in the in the uprising there. So it's really interesting to see that that point of view. You know what I mean? I think it's very, I don't know, poisoned by Twitter maybe. For sure. Uh, yeah, I think it's like very in vogue too hate russia or like only like associate russia with the kremlin so like that there's a shorthand of like oh russia did this when we like really mean russian politicians did this but yeah i was also really heartened by um russians like solidarity with what's going on in kazakhstan like that there have been single person pickets in cities all across the country um including astrakhan which is a city on the caspian like it's a city of like a million people i don't know how many people live in the overall region but 
there it's like 150,000 ethnic Kazakhs live there, like born in Russia, raised in Russia, happen to be ethnic Kazakhs and like maybe have family across the border. But um, there was a really cool piece reported by the Radio Free Europe affiliate there. Um, well, I guess it's, yeah, the Tatar language affiliate that was talking to ethnic Kazakhs in this region of Russia. And they were like, this is like a huge shame for our country. Like, this is so embarrassing. Do not send troops. Um, so it's like that. I went to a, a, a Zoom poetry marathon where for four hours, um, people in Russia and Ukraine um, read poetry, like anti-war poetry and read poetry by Kazakh artists who weren't able to join because of the internet blackout. Um, but it was just a really powerful reminder that, yeah, like one, not all Russians, <laughs> and two, um, that there really is this anti-war impulse in, in amongst people all over the world. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to talk about this so-called militant group or guerrilla group, um, the Kazakhstan Liberation Front. Um, I think it was January 7th I've written in my notes where basically this, this militant group released a video, I'm sure you saw it, and there's like four of them, they're holding um, various different assault rifles, kind of saying, you know, we're gonna fight the Kazakh military and we're gonna fight the the CSTO. A lot of people were like, this seems like bullshit. Personally, I thought it could be possible that this is real, like just, just based on the rapid acceleration of how violent the protests become. There was even a vague kind of claim, they said they attacked like, uh, I think a convoy of troops or something. Um, what, what do you make of it? I'm sure you've seen this video. I'm sure you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I saw it. Um, the journalists that I trust most who are from Kazakhstan, like immediately denounced this as bullshit. Really? Oh, um, okay. Immediately. Um, and we're asking people not to share it because it feeds into the government's claim that there's these, this like foreign funded and foreign trained terrorist group. Um, one of the like pieces of evidence that some people were passing around is like, oh, this proves that it's fake is like that they speak, the way that they speak is really off, that it's like someone put a Russian text into Google Translate and popped it out. Like it just like doesn't make a ton of sense <laughs> into in Kazakh, like that the Kazakh bits don't make a lot of sense. Um, and so essentially if there is this like nationalist Islamic uh, like terrorist organization that's been training in, the mountains of whatever country Kazakhstan's going to decide they were training, um, whether that's Turkey, Kyrgyzstan, out of there, they have a lot of uh, countries that border them, but not a lot that I think they can throw under the bus um, like this. But yeah, just that it, it these journalists that I trust a lot said that it felt off, and this is something that yeah I think add it to the bucket of things that. I think I would want to wait for another week for these people to have the resources and the internet to, to do a, a deeper dive. But my gut is that it's bullshit and like was similarly planned, whether it's planted, I don't think that like Tokayev is sitting and like directing this film, like, Oh yes, perfect. Like place a $1 bill at the bottom of your rifle. Um, but if it somehow is connected to the broader um narrative building campaign right well that's good to know i'll scrap that then ignore that <laughs> um if the locals are not uh, are not convinced then i'd say that's pretty pretty safe to say that it's not legit it's so badly made then if that is the case you know what i mean because obviously i don't speak the language so i had no fucking clue what they're saying but it, it's a weird one i i agree though i don't think i don't obviously it's not like the government is like right 
this is how we do it. I think just possibly Russia, I mean, they're pretty good at stuff like this. I think a team probably just came in and were like, right, yeah, we know what to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? We know how to kind of do this because that, that doesn't happen by accident. No, definitely. And it doesn't happen by accident. I think like if there's a story having to do with the Kazakhstan Liberation Front, the story is like, why did they decide to go? Why did authorities decide to go this route? Who made the video? Right. And yeah. not like who is in Kazakhstan Liberation Front? Like that's, there's a story there, but it's like who made this and why? Like who paid Absolutely. them to do this? Yeah. They did a, there was a similar one a few years back. I think that was linked to Russia. Well, there was two. There was one video that was quite a good, but like once you kind of picked it apart, quite an obvious fake of Azov, the, the fascist uh, battalion in Ukraine, yeah. uh, of them hanging a pregnant woman, which was obviously really grim, but you had to look at it to realise it wasn't real. Like, it was quite well faked, but it was quite clearly not real. And there was another one where they were like, I think it was, you know, maybe nondescript, but they were saying it was like Ukrainian troops threatening the EU. <laughs> you know, it just was like a really weird one, and it didn't really make sense. And that turned out to be linked to Russia. And to be honest... It was kind of similar, similar actually, I guess, to, to this kind of video. But yeah, well, that's good to know. Um, so, so as as like you said, the internet is slowly coming back, only for a few hours. Um, what have you heard the the situation is is like right now there? Yeah, so I mean, there was like a four hour window when the internet was on, and I was struck by people in Almaty who were posting both like, "Here's a list of phone numbers you can call if you're injured or know someone who's injured." here's a food bank, like we'll quick, like try to deliver food to you if you're hungry. Um, people were posting photographs, of, like here's my impression from the last few days. So a few of the bigger like Instagram, not definitely not influencers. There's been like a whole discourse on Kazakhstani Twitter over like the bloggers have gone pro regime and they're not criticizing the violence. Um, but some of like the hipper activists who have big Instagram followings are, are posting um, there's like photos of burned out cars and bloody patches of grass and like long kind of essays, maybe like 800 word essays reflecting on just how scary the last several days have been. But I was super struck by like also that people, these people had like, they knew that they only had hours to be online and just like dozens and dozens of memes have popped up over like in that four hour period they're like all right we've got it like we only have four hours to shit post like who are we targeting today um with our four hour allotment of internet um so the four hours was definitely a, a flurry of, of info of just i'm safe and also fuck the government um type posts which was a huge relief after so many days of not hearing anything. Yeah, right. So so they're essentially, you know, I mean, I guess all these memes are pretty much directed at the situation, right? Yeah, it's a lot of stuff of like, um, it's covering international relations. So like the fact that people found out about Kazakhstan trying to throw that Kyrgyz jazz artist under the bus. Um, it's rehashing memes from 2019, the big protests after uh, Tokayev was elected over like, why is this happening again? Um, it's stuff about like meta stuff on like, why do we not have internet? Um, and yeah, I haven't seen like memes joking about the violence at all, but um, they're just like memes of the incompetence of the government and this just being a really like devastating example of it. So I think like the, the impulse like turn to humor to process that speaks to political legacies in Kazakhstan um, and just the, the way that 
people are trying to make sense of what happened without like losing their minds at how how grim it is. Yeah, no, I, I'm a big believer in you know using the comedy in a bleak situation to kind of get by. Uh, it's something I've experienced in every conflict I've reported on. It makes sense, definitely. Um, do do you think this is the end of it? Then do you think that you know people will be kind of I don't know, too scared maybe to 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 do this level of protest again? Um, or do you think this is just like a lull? So I think that we'll have clues on like what Tokayev and the government that's left is trying to do in the next few days. Um, I think that it's like tomorrow, Kazakhstan time in the morning are supposed to be announcements over like replacement positions. So this will, I think, give us some clues over like who Tokayev sees is on his side and how he's trying to consolidate power. Um, but, you know, in reading interviews, like the, one of the like mainstays uh, in Kazakhstan's human rights community, Yevgeny Joftis, gave an interview in his like two hours of free internet, gave an interview with Open Democracy in which he kind of described it as like, this is the worst possible scenario that this whole community of people pushing for political reform could have hoped for. Like, because not only did you not get political reform, but you like created a narrative. They didn't create it. Obviously, these people did not create it. But the end result is one in which the government can claim legitimate reasons to crack down on press, to crack down on NGOs. And there's going to be a lot of support because like this whole the terrorist narrative, like oh, average people in random cities outside of Almaty are going to be like, oh, yeah, well, do whatever you have to do to keep the terrorists out. Um, which I think could justify repression on targeted on like targeted repression at these communities that are working for change. Um, so on the one hand, it's like, I think we're still waiting for the top level, like elite power game to play out, which will give a signal of like how badly repressive it's going to be. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't know what happens to the bottom up, like to the grassroots movement pushing for change, I think it's going to be a huge challenge for them um, to, to counteract the, this like terrorist narrative. Um, I mean, I'm hopeful. I'm like at the end of the day, an optimist and a handful of other um, academics, some of whom are like from Kazakhstan are also super optimistic about this. Um, I be like, yeah, I, I believe in their message. I believe in their tactics. Um, and I really, really hope that it will work out, but I think it's not going to be, um, an easy year for for political reform in Kazakhstan. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm no expert on Kazakhstan, but but I know a bit about like you know like kind of conflicts, especially in the kind of irregular side of it. And I, it's it'd be a lot to to be able to just go back to normal after all that. You know what I mean? That was a big deal. For sure. I mean, yeah, you like look at the U.S. where like terrorist attack and 9/11 leads to 20 plus years of just like total global implosion and domestic yeah. <laughs> incursion on civil liberties and stuff like uh, yeah i don't i don't know what happens next for for that movement in kazakhstan but nonetheless i'm i'm hopeful i'm hopeful for them that these people are, are brilliant and working super hard um that there is a community that i think you one one scenario is like people just seeing how incompetent kaiv is like his speech today where he claimed that there was like a zombie component to the terrorist incursion, which like he sounds unhinged. Like it's just, it's really wild. And if footage of that gets out, I don't know how people take him seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll just, before you go, I just wanted to get your opinion on this, this kind of developing situation where firstly there was a photo of Kazakh troops 
wearing UN helmets and then I think in Almaty and then there was an image of Belarus uh, troops that had been sent there as part of the the CSTO wearing uh, like muted UN patches on their uniform and in fact they'd removed their unit patch just to have the UN patch now to me I mean, I think that's very clear. There's been some kind of joke has gone on in the, the CSTO and they've just been like, right, we're going to troll the UN, wear your UN helmets, we'll put a UN patch on. Um, a lot of people seem to agree, but then I had this tweet from, uh, who is it? He, he's he's, he's a, like a verified Twitter account, but he just says, permanent representative of the Republic of Kazakhstan to the United Nations. Now, he's saying that, um, oh, uh, he says, during the violent riots in Almaty, the peacekeeping units of the Ministry of Defense of Kazakhstan was put on high alert to assist and protect strategic infrastructure facilities of the city uh, from the terrorists and extremists. Except for the helmets that were worn as part of the official gear of local peacekeepers during the high threat, no UN marked equipment was used. Um, which seems a really weird thing to say because it's like the helmet is the main thing. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, uh, uh, to to get to the point, he's kind of said, oh, yeah, it's the peacekeeping. But there was no mandate from the UN to send out any UN peacekeeping troops during that situation. So it sounds like bullshit. It sounds to me like, yeah, they were trolling. And basically one of the representatives of the government is trying to be like, uh, it was this. Um, what's, what's your read on it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. I think right. the, most, so, right? the most generous read of it is like, this is the first time CSTO is putting out any type of peacekeeping mission. And like, who fucking knows? Like down the like ladder, the higher, like, I don't know, like the pyramid of, of power within, um, within each of these countries' militaries. Like maybe some lower level official is like, we're peacekeepers. Like that's the same as the UN and somehow got the helmets. Uh, that's like the most generous. And even that though, like <laughs> that's very generous. Competence. Yeah. I know, I know, but like, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's a mess and hopefully they don't use the helmets to uh, conduct mass atrocities. Cause I mean, like Kazakhstan just started on January 1st, a two year stint as a member on the UN um council for human rights mm. so yeah this could i think really backfire for kazakhstan's international reputation if if anything bad gets filmed <laughs> no you're right you're right um that is a good point that might be why they're now trying to like backtrack with completely nonsensical claims um we made sure we didn't use any equipment apart from the archetypal un blue helmet like it's like really like it doesn't even make sense they were using the humvees as well they were patrolling in the in the humvees so Kazakhstan um, is like a pretty big supplier of peacekeepers with the un so maybe yeah. that like when CSTO showed up, they're just like, oh, yeah, we have all this stuff. Like, <laughs> we're peacekeepers, may as well use it. I have no idea. It just, yeah. yeah, I think shows, like, incompetence all the way down, both from, like, actions, narratives. It's just, like, people are making up the rules of the game as they go. It's, yeah, I think you're right. With devastating consequences. Like, not yeah, not, like, incompetence all the way down. It's ridiculous, but it's also, like, devastating. Yeah. Um. Do you so so I think it's 164 people they've said have been killed, um, 8,000 arrested. The government came up with this ridiculous thing about 20,000 
um, foreign terrorists were in the country, but then they robbed the bodies from the morgue, so we can't identify them, like you just said. Just nonsense. Um, what do you do? You think the real number is going to be a lot higher? Like 164 is pretty high anyway, but I imagine it will be higher than that. What, what do you think? Not to speculate, but just based on like you know the level of the protest, how densely populated that city is. Yeah. Well, so that's like the death count is supposedly like countrywide, the protest or the arrest count is countrywide. Um, I think what's kind of weird is like out of the 8,000 people who've been arrested, the last count that I read from the government was like only 800 and change were arrested in Almaty. Um, so I'm not really sure like where else massive arrests were happening or like, yeah, that's another like wait for details from local journalists is like, what is the like distribution of this across the country? Um, but I think in terms of like trying to guesstimate the death toll, like, so in the, the massacre that happened in Janazen in 2011, I think that the official numbers, it was like 14, 13, 14 protesters were killed by police. Um, and unofficial estimates were in the hundreds. Um, so if that ratio is like something that maps onto this, I think that the death count is like way way higher um than 164 i mean like a handful of kids are like two children dead already they've said yeah so Mm. i I think it's the the numbers are going to be unfortunately really quite high um i think it'll be a huge challenge for journalists to verify that info and to be able to post it anyway even if they can verify it to be able to post it domestically um that that's not something the government is going to want out um but yeah, I think this is unprecedented for, for Kazakhstan's history, uh, like independent history. Yeah. T- talking about unverified things, just one last thing. Um, d- I, there were some claims by the government that two police officers were beheaded by protesters. I think it's quite clear what they were trying to get at there. Um, not to say that, you know, that couldn't happen, but, you know, I don't know, it seemed interesting. There's, from what I've seen, there's been no evidence whatsoever other than what the government has said. Um, have you seen anything uh, to back that up? Nope, haven't seen anything about that. Um, the Telegram channels of journalists that I'm following have not mentioned that at all and haven't even, like, reposted um, the government's commentary on it. I think... Yeah, that that strikes me as fitting pretty neatly into the this is a foreign and religious terrorist yeah. effort. Okay. Um, is there anything else you want to mention then uh, before we go? No, I think we, we covered it all. I mean, the only thing I'll say is like, it's hard to not like something like this happens in the news and there's like a 48 hour window where people are interested. Um, but this like information blackout has really just like made it impossible for information to actually like fit into that 48 hour attention span. So like for people who are interested in the outcome of this, I think like it's worth it to give it a week, give it several weeks for like local journalists to actually have the internet resources to follow through and study these things. Um, It's hard just like with the pace of international media, but um, I think that it's worth it to, to pay attention both to like the ways that the government is trying to stop this type of movement um and the strategy of just like shutting off the internet is really scary to me um that i wouldn't be surprised if that's there's like authoritarian learning from that but i think it's worth it to be patient and wait for the people who are on the ground and know what's happened to to verify stuff yeah no definitely that is it's a real worry um 
Definitely, I think as well, I just want to shout out NetBlocks. Uh, if you look on Twitter, just at NetBlocks, they've done a real good job, as they always do. Like, basically, they were the first ones kind of saying, right, the internet is down, you know, in Kazakhstan in this part, blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's definitely a new thing that, well, not new, but it's just it's just being relied upon so heavily now um, by, like, any authoritarian government. It's it's a scary future, I think. Even following, like, Belarus, the, pro the yeah. protests in Belarus last summer, and just, like, broadly following Turkmenistani politics, like, they have a pretty strict hold over the internet, and, like, it's consistently ranks almost last on every like reporters without borders list as like information black hole but like i think it's even worse than that um there's a scary reminder over like how the switch can be flipped pretty pretty easily yeah definitely um okay um colleen if people want to follow your work or get in touch with you how can they do that for sure i'm on twitter at colleen wood underdash um my website is colleenwood.rocks <laughs> not because i'm a geologist just because i'm yeah. awesome um yeah follow check me out all right brilliant thank you very much yeah take care thanks That was Colleen Wood speaking about the deadly uprising in Kazakhstan. She definitely covered a lot there. If somebody tells you this came out of nowhere, point them in the direction of this episode or to Colleen. She knows what is going on. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. You will get a lot more there as well. I think there's over 100 bonus episodes now, Patreon-only bonus episodes. Um, yeah, check that out, patreon.com slash popularfront. We do not accept corporate investment, and we don't have advertising from any shitheads like bad, non-ethical people, people that don't want to pay their workers fairly and stuff like that. Just an ethos we have. Not saying everyone has to do it, but that's how we do it. But that means uh, we don't make a lot of money. So the way we keep this flowing is patreon.com slash popularfront. The other way is merchandise sales. Believe it or not, we sell a lot of merchandise, a lot of t-shirts uh, specifically. You can buy our merchandise at popularfront.shop. That's the website, www.popularfront.shop. Not store, as someone said I should have it, dot shop. So check that out, t-shirts, all sorts there. If you are on the Patreon, be sure to check the merchandise discounts tab because that comes as um, as, a, as a perk of uh, the Patreon tiers there. So check that out, patreon.com slash popularfront. This episode was sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee shop coffee business selling only fair trade products see them at 3875 southwest bond avenue 97239 the episode was also sponsored by grind core house a pair of independent coffee shops in philadelphia usa one in south one in west find them on socials at grind core house the episode was also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and writing about historical conflict propaganda from around the world. You can buy prints at propagandopolis.com. Use the promo code POPULARFRONT10 for 10% off. Also check out the Popular Front section there. We have some uh, posters there that are specifically um, Popular Front stuff. You know, things we've, we've photos we've taken in the field, stuff from our documentaries. The JSTAT poster is there, all sorts propagandopolis.com if you want to follow us on social media um twitter um twitter.com slash popular front underscore instagram 
at popular.front um, youtube.com slash popularfront oh yeah check that out we've got a new documentary up uh, up on the YouTube it's growing rapidly loads and loads of views um, very quickly people seem to like it it's called Sinaloa Foot Soldier Inside Inside the Lives of a Drug Cartel <laughs> Soldier or something I can't fucking remember I forgot my own title whatever check it out youtube.com slash popularfront Sinaloa Foot Soldier we made that in uh, in uh, partnership with 550 BC very very fun um, doing this good peoples definitely um, check them out 550bc.com you can buy the book that accompanies the doc or the doc accompanies the book rather whatever you want to look at it but yeah youtube.com slash popular front subscribe watch all our documentaries we are completely demonetized because youtube are fucking assholes um, but it is what it is so yeah support us on patreon if you like our docs and you get uh, further the newer docs you'll get them uh, before everybody else patreon.com slash popular front um, thank you to our higher tier Patreons Oh no wait yeah the music in this episode Was by Sam Black You can see his music at samblack.com um, The intro though was made By home different artist um, Yeah thank you to our higher tier Patreons they are Username NTHG845829 If you can change your username that would be much easier <laughs> But no worries if not uh, Tom Taylor Ethan Zwick, Champagne Anarchist, Thwat, Elise Middlefer, Lewis, David McManus, Joaquin Williamson Holt, Idoye Travis, Tom Petrie, James Leons, Kate, Lisa Milgram, Bradley Davies, Brendan Crave, Pete Hesher, RX, A. Nicole, Travis Lieberman, Cherry, Ben Marshall, Dallas Dunn, LD50 Seattle, MJ, Kaglitter Vulcan, Meredith Waters, Bethany Swoveland, Adam H, Carante, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamondstein, Michael O'Connor, Zach Picard, Dodd, Todd Cravens, Nicholas Butter, JD, Jav, Ian Froese, James Cully, Tynan Daly, Ethan, uh, Shanklin the Painter, Fitz Madrid, Ed Coulthard, Mike Barone, Liam Williams, The Generate Zero Alpha, Giorgio Arani, DR, Trey Nance, Amy R, Rubicon, Frank Austin, Amelia Mee, Nawais, Nate Van Dor, Christina Rivetti, Freya Northman, Noah, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, JL, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarak, Dan Donham, Fletcher, Diana Govanek, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did. Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, and Maurice Zumbul. Thank you all very much. Really do appreciate it. Without you lot, this would not be growing as rapidly as it is. Thank you so much. Patreon.com slash popular front.